The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. One of the great assumptions that underlies what we do here in chapel is that the word of God's grace is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are being sanctified. So in light of that, hear now the reading of God's holy word from Hebrews 9, verses 15 through 28, with special attention given to verses 23 through 28. Therefore he, Jesus Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive a promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The book of Hebrews uh, was written to a group of Jewish Christians who were tempted to revert to the typical economy of the Mosaic Covenant, which would effectively deny the coming of Jesus Christ. And for that reason, the book of Hebrews, more than any other book in the Bible, is designed to clarify for us the relationship between the first or Mosaic Covenant on the one hand and the new covenant on the other hand. And the theological message of the book of Hebrews is multifaceted, but from one standpoint, 
You can think of the announcement of the book of Hebrews being that we have moved from a Mosaic covenant of promise and shadow to a new covenant of fulfillment and realization. And the pivotal event that occasions this redemptive historical transition is the advent of Jesus Christ. One way to think of this in terms of an illustration would be to imagine the sun setting behind my back. And you know who I am, but I'm standing far away from you. And I am encased in shadow. And the sun shining over my shoulders casts a shadow far in front of me. And you can make out my form. You can discern who I am. But as I begin to walk closer to you, the shadows that were cast far in front of me begin to recede. And the form begins to give way to more distinctive features. And as I walk closer and closer and closer to you, I step, as it were, out of the shadows and we see each other face to face. And so there's a clarity that was not possible when I was encased in shadows. Well, something very similar to that has happened. The author of Hebrews begins this book by declaring that Jesus Christ is the brightness of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And it is as it were he has burst forth from that shadowy economy under Moses. And we now see him face to face, recognizing, of course, that we see only in a mirror darkly now and will see even clearer when he returns. Nonetheless, the movement is real. Jesus has burst forth from the shadows, and we now see him in clarity as the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Lord and Savior. And what I want to focus on this morning in the brief time that we have is simply this, that the coming of Jesus Christ fulfills and surpasses all that was given in that Mosaic covenant. That's the general point. But specifically, I want you to notice from our text in Hebrews 9, 23 through 28, that Jesus Christ fulfills and surpasses the Mosaic Covenant with respect to the tabernacle in which he serves, the priesthood that he possesses, and the sacrifice that he offers. In those three concrete ways, we witness something remarkable and of epoch-changing significance. First, the tabernacle. When Moses inaugurated the first covenant in verse 18, he stood before the people and he sprinkled blood on the law, on the people, and on the tabernacle. That was the event that inaugurated this Mosaic covenant. And notice Moses sprinkled the tabernacle. I think it makes sense intuitively why Moses would sprinkle people who were unclean, but why would Moses sprinkle not only the law, but the tabernacle itself. Notice that the tabernacle was sprinkled because within that tabernacle dwelled a God of infinite holiness and purity. Remember, if you were to enter into the most holy place, what would you see inside? 
you would see the outstretched wings of cherubim forming, as it were, a golden throne on which the Lord God Almighty was seated amidst his people. You would enter into a resplendent and glorious room that was filled with gold and had allusions back to the glory of Eden and palm trees and angels, all of the things that would remind you of God's glorious presence in the midst of his people. And what would you find immediately under this throne in the Ark of the Covenant? You would find a jar of manna, Aaron's rod that had blossomed, and the Ten Commandments. You would find the law of God by which he viewed all who would enter into his most holy presence. And that law functions as a transcript of his moral perfection, a standard that no creature can attain a reflection or a communication of God's unrelenting and unremitting holiness and its demand upon all who would enter into God's presence. And you would be undone, just as Isaiah stood in the presence of this God and saw the train of his robes filling the temple and covered his mouth because he was unclean and lived among a people that was unclean. And therefore, this holy place needs blood. Moses inaugurated the first covenant, this old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, with the sprinkling of blood of goats and calves and scarlet wool and hyssop. But notice that the author of Hebrews tells us that he sprinkled an earthly tabernacle. The inaugural event of the new covenant is likewise a sprinkling of blood. That's the point of similarity. But just as Moses inaugurated the Old Covenant by sprinkling an earthly tabernacle with blood, Jesus inaugurates the New Covenant by sprinkling not an earthly reality, but a heavenly one. See, the Mosaic tabernacle, the tabernacle, the temple as it came to be, was only a copy of a heavenly reality. The earthly tabernacle is actually patterned after a corresponding heavenly original. If you look back in Hebrews 8.5, the author of Hebrews tells us that when God called Moses up on a mountain, he called him to see not only his glory and give him the Decalogue, but he showed Moses the pattern after which the earthly tabernacle was to be constructed. He showed Moses, in other words, not the earthly copy, but he showed him the heavenly exemplar, the heavenly pattern after which the tabernacle was to be constructed. It's as though the Lord unveiled to Moses the glory of heaven itself as the paradigm and pattern that the tabernacle was to reflect. Hence, the tabernacle becomes what? A copy and a shadow of heaven itself. 
And therefore, our text in 9, 23 and 24 tells us that Jesus has not entered into the earthly tabernacle made with hands, but he has entered into the heavenly original. The Old Testament tabernacle from its very inception pointed Israel's religious hope upward and forward to heaven. Israel's religious hope is fulfilled and realized in this new covenant order where Jesus Christ rises and ascends to the heavenly reality itself, not the earthly copy. Jesus Christ, by his resurrection and ascension, has entered into that tabernacle that is not made with hands. That is to say, that is not a part of this creation. And this means, therefore, that your life is now identified with heaven, a heavenly tabernacle, a heavenly holy place. That reality to which Eden, to which Canaan, to which the tabernacle in Canaan pointed, namely heaven and the holiness of the God who is seated there. Jesus Christ now has appeared in heaven for you on your behalf. And that moves us to the second point with regard to priest and sacrifice. Notice this, that the priest entered the holy place year by year with blood that was not his own. Verse 25. And once again, we'll see a very significant point of discontinuity here. The high priest must bring a sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, and this is the way we make sense of blood, not his own. Leviticus 16, in the Day of Atonement, you remember very clearly that the high priest would take two goats, among other animals, and he would confess the sin of Israel over the head of one goat, thereby identifying. Israel's sin with that goat called the scapegoat, and he would have that goat taken out of the holy place, outside the courtyard, outside the camp, into the wilderness, symbolically bearing away Israel's sin and guilt. The other goat he would slaughter, and he would take its blood, and he would enter into the most holy place in the presence of the Lord God Almighty, seated within the glory of his presence above the wings of the cherubim. And he would sprinkle that blood to make propitiation for sin, to satisfy the wrath of God. But the key is that the priest and the sacrifice were distinct from one another. Secondly, the high priest would have to make this sacrifice annually, year after year. It was repeated annually in order to turn up the fact that this sacrificial system with its priest and sacrifice was inherently provisional, inherently transitory, inherently temporary. And therefore, when we think of the old covenant priest and sacrifice, we must remember these two basic things, that the priest and the sacrifice are distinct from one another, and the efficacy of this sacrifice is limited to one year. 
at which point it must be repeated. Contrary to this order, which distinguished the priest and the sacrifice, notice Jesus is himself both the priest and the sacrifice. Notice, contrary to the old covenant order, Jesus sacrificed himself. In the priestly mediation of Jesus Christ, the priest and the sacrifice converge in one person. Jesus is both the priest who offers the sacrifice and the sacrifice offered. And for that reason, then, in the new covenant, in the Melchizedekian priesthood, there is but one priest and one sacrifice. And secondly, Contrary to the Old Covenant order that uh, provided sacrifices of temporary effectiveness, Jesus' sacrifice brings permanent results. And this is clear in at least this way. Jesus Christ has appeared once for all at the consummation of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The consummation of the ages brings into view in this particular text what we would typically think of as the end of history as we know it, the end of the successive ages that continue from creation through fall until consummation. Yet in the book of Hebrews, it's very clear that this event occurred 2,000 years ago. What does it mean to say that Jesus offered himself once for all as a sacrifice to put away sin at the consummation of the ages? It means at least this much. It means that the eternal judgment which will befall all unbelievers at the end of the ages has already befallen Christ. It means that the eschatological judgment of God that will befall all who do not look to Christ has already befallen Christ. It means that there was an intrusion of justice and judgment against sin in the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And this is clear not simply from the language, the consummation of the ages in verse 26, but in verse 27. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so also Christ. Christ's death involves his encounter with judgment, with the tribunal of eternal justice against sin. And he did this for you. From one standpoint, Hebrews 9.26 is a proclamation of the gospel from the standpoint of Jesus' humiliation. There is no better news for the Christian than to know that Jesus has put away sin once for all, definitively, without need for repetition and without the possibility of improvement, he has drunk to the dregs the fury of God Almighty for you. Do you know what the good news of this means for you? 
it means that while you will stand before God's judgment seat to give an account of your life to receive rewards, you will not stand before him in order to have your eternal destiny fixed. Because your eternal destiny was fixed when Jesus took away your sin once for all on the cross. Your judgment is just as past as the judgment of Jesus Christ because he has appeared once at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ has borne the judgment due you. And if his judgment is holy past and he died as a sacrifice to do away with your sin once for all, your judgment is holy past if you trust in him. Notice this, verse 28 fixes our attention on Christ's second coming. When Christ comes a second time, it won't be to bear sin, but it will be to bring salvation to those who eagerly await him. It will be to bring down a kingdom from heaven that is presently veiled from sight and confer this holy kingdom on his holy people. When Jesus comes a second time, it will be to free you from this present wilderness status and to bring you into a city that has foundations whose maker and builder is God. He will come to confer the fullness of his holy kingdom upon his holy people who are holy in him. But what does that presuppose? It presupposes that while Jesus died to take away sin forever, he did not remain dead. That the crucified Messiah is the resurrected Messiah. And the resurrected Messiah is the ascended and seated Messiah. And he now lives in heaven to intercede for you. In fact, Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 tells us that Jesus now lives to intercede for you so that he can save you to the utmost. What are you to do now? What are you to do? You are to turn your face and your heart to heaven. You are to turn and look for the coming of this priest. You are to eagerly wait his return. You are to call to God to give you his spirit and work in you a spirit-wrought longing for this one to return. And when he returns, he will come not to bear sin, but to bring salvation, the fullness of his eschatological kingdom, to his people who look to him by faith. Look to him, and you will not be disappointed, either in this age or in the age to come. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we praise you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you that Jesus has taken away our sin from us as far as the east is from the west, that he ever lives now to intercede for us, and he is coming again to bring salvation to all who eagerly wait for him. Grant us faith and help us to persevere and cause us to look to the one who has sat down at your right hand in glory, in whom alone there is righteousness and life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.